sound they have this sort of very close connection with memory it's like the best way to remember there's so much emotional memory that can be triggered of the past or even the future sound does this very strongly Hello and welcome back to the One Beat Podcast, Season 2, where we're celebrating 10 years of innovative and dynamic One Beat programming across the globe. My name is Elena Moonpark. This episode, we're back with Kenyan composer and FSN collaborator, Yokabi Karaoke, who takes us on the second part of a journey through Nairobi, where she explores the sounds of Kenya's past, present, and future through the lens of some of the interesting Kenyan artists in the scene today. In the previous episode, we met a vinyl guru, an electronic futurist, and a dynamic percussionist and one-beat alumna. This second episode brings about a change of pace, a slowing down into the warm, lush, and patient worlds of the ambient electronic musician Joseph Kamaru. Kamaru has been called a master of quietness, which is evident in his music, as he deftly combines field recordings and electronic sounds to create boundless soundscapes. In this interview, you hear this translates to his personality, too, an artist fueled by a mind constantly in thought and deep reflection. This conversation traces Kamara's journey from his upbringing in Kenya and shows how place influences his music making, following into his ethics when it comes to field recording practice. In the One Beat podcast, we not only share stories from artists within the One Beat alumni community, but also folks who are fans of, for the imaginative ways that they're using art and music in the intersection of social change. This conversation between these two Kenyan sound artists, Yokabi Karaoke and Kamaru, offers a powerful closing picture of this two-part spotlight on the Kenyan music scene, shining a light on how sound is an important part of how Africans understand their relationship to place, heritage, and life. Now let's hear from Yokabi. In the first part of this two-part episode, we had the voices of Kenyan music makers that are finding, in sound, a way to inquire about the past, the present, and the future. I had asked, can sound reveal new things to us about ourselves and our history that other forms of archiving simply cannot do as well? We'd heard from Jimmy Rugami, a man who dubs himself the real vinyl guru, and he's been running a record store in a popular outdoor market in Nairobi since 1985 and has collected over 50,000 records. Every time I find records somewhere, However much they cost, I'd rather rob a bank. Make sure I end up with them. <laughs> Next, we met the electronic musician DJ Raf, who lit a fire in the electronic music scene in Nairobi, building several communities, from a performance space in the basement of an abandoned mall to the Sound of Nairobi archive, where he and his teams investigate how sound can be a potent source of information through the consistent collection of field recordings of the city over weeks, months, and years of time. There used to be sounds that you would hear in Nairobi like 10 years ago, 20 years ago, that don't exist today. What kind of sounds might there be in the future? And lastly, we met Kasiva Motua, a very talented percussionist and one-beat alumna who is driven by the goal of being a culture bearer, passing on her knowledge of traditional African drumming through not only her solo projects and performances, but also through founding Motra Music, which has led over 40 women through a program of mentorship, sisterhood, and of course, drumming. Me choosing to play drums and the drums choosing me is something that I really take pride in, not only because it's something that I do love, but it's something that actually represents where I come from. 
Now, adding to the conversation is the electronic musician Kamaru, who adds a slightly different perspective to the story. Part of digging into the past includes confronting things that didn't go so right and finding ways to reclaim and recontextualize what is true to us as people of the continent. His latest project, Temporary Stored, is an attempt at bringing sound back into the conversation around restitution, which has been a growing topic in the world of museums and archives in recent years. Sound, too, was a looted object, Kamaru says. This leads me to ponder on several questions with him. What spaces are right to record? What spaces are better left alone? And how can this idea of restituting sound inform our larger question of what sound can truly offer as a medium to preserve African truths? My name is Nyokabi Karyuki, and let's dig into part two. What you're currently listening to is the boundless work of one of the most exciting ambient musicians today. It's the titular track from Peel, an album described by Philip Sherburn of Pitchfork as having the depth of a Rothko painting, with tracks sometimes 13, 15, even 23 minutes long, like obsidian-colored lakes that beckon the listener to sink into their lightless depths. The work is by the fascinating and in many ways ubiquitous, 25-year-old Kenyan sound artist, Joseph Kamaru, who releases music under the moniker pronounced as Kamaru, but spelled K-M-R-U. For many of us Kenyans, it's special to see him carry on the legacy of his late grandfather, who had the same name, Joseph Kamaru. He was a banger and gospel musician whose art was a persistent part of the Kenyan music landscape, especially in the 70s and 80s. But the work of the 25-year-old Kamaru proves powerful enough on its own, and I'd say it absolutely offers a wonderful fragment of the bounds that African art continues to reach. Since Peel's release in 2020, Kamaru has shown us that he's a prolific artist and an electronic musician with his own unique vision. This vision is one he has been building for a long time. I interviewed him over Zoom while he is currently in Berlin, pursuing a postgraduate degree in sound studies. Here we go. Thank you so much for joining me, Kamaru. Cool, yeah, thank you for having me. I think, I think I'll start from the beginning and ask you whether you have any musical memories from when you were young. I, I do remember me and my older brother used to sing together along with my mom when I was a child or like just listening to lots of music and trying to sing along to them. We were surrounded with music, mostly cassette tapes and just playing with tapes. And like my mom and my dad would used to buy tapes and we'd play them. I don't know how old I was, but this is like my very earliest memory of like getting into this musical world and enjoying that you can play music or you can hear sound through like a device. Do you remember any of the songs that you would sing? We'd try and sing along to my grandfather's songs. And you 
I do remember singing to pop music back then. I don't remember the artist, but it was like mostly popular music. Kenyan popular music or like Western popular music? Both. Me and my big brother have this very close connection because we grew up together a lot. We used to go to school together. And when we used to go to school, we used to go either with public transport where the music was like the main medium where I would hear like lots of interesting music and going back home we'd try and find this music and play. You mentioned being exposed to pop music on public transport and it's only now hitting me that because you and I grew up in Kenya, this is very normal to us at home. But in Berlin where you are right now or in New York where I am right now, the natural state of public transportation is just Silence. Yeah, I think it's because things here are so systemized, like very rigid, where people are just like from one point to the other. Western culture is like drawn to silence. They they love silence. And for us, I guess, for example, in Nairobi, there's so much noise and it influences how they navigate through the spaces they're living. And also Berlin as a city is, it's still alive, but I think it's a bit dead in a way that <laughs> there isn't lots of human sounds happening. Yeah, there's something very powerful about that to me, this idea of equating life to sound. Yeah. It's very common, as you say, that a matatu, which is what we call these public transport minibuses in Kenya, will just pass you by and you hear music blasting from the speakers. And it's a huge sign of life and activity in the city. Something I'm curious about, and maybe you can speak to this either from when you were living in Karyoko, which is right in the middle of Nairobi, or from when you moved to Rongai, which is in the much quieter outskirts of the city. When you used these matatus growing up, did you find yourself choosing certain routes solely because of the music? When we moved to Rongai, and Rongai has a really huge matatu culture in Nairobi, because of the graffiti and the, the loud music and also the sound systems in the buses. All of them are very competitive and there's always a new matatu every month and people would know. You'd hear the matatus blaring the sound from afar. So, you know, like, okay, this, this matatu is coming, so we need to get ready for... And people will scramble to, like, get inside because it's, it's going to be the fastest to get home and, like, the music is going to be good. So, yeah. <laughs> From what I hear, it sounds like you grew up in a place with so much uh, sonic activity. How did that lead you to make the work that you make now, which I think a lot of people would describe as ambient? Uh, a lot more quiet, a lot more just patient. I like how you say it, it's patient. <laughs> I did grow up in a very noisy environment. Before moving to Rungai, we used to stay in a resident called Karyoko. Karyoko is a residence really close to the city center. It's like part of the CBD. We were living on Block A, which Block A is just next to the main road that goes to town. I can imagine having to be close to high, loud noises 
from childhood and then moving to the outskirts of Nairobi in a place called Rongai, which is next to the national park. It's so green, it's so chill, and you realize how much silence there is. Except for when those matatus are coming. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, so it was a nice con- contrast of like being in these two different places and I guess I was already interested in the music making process. I was experimenting with different genres and styles of music, but life felt so slow or like very calm in Rungai that it translated to the music that I was making. It was very seamless, like very effortless. You just hear sound um, and record it or the presence of nature was so close that um, you get inspired a lot sonically because there's so much sound you can hear. And I think if we didn't move to Rongai, I wouldn't be making music because I think my head will have been somewhere else. Yeah, I always tell my parents this. <laughs> wow, that's so, that's so like you know interesting to hear. I think I recall in one of your interviews that you said you started making noisier music when you moved to Berlin because it was so silent. Mm. <laughs> so that's an interesting thing to think about how place and the sound that you hear in these places affects the outcome of your music making. I'm interested to hear how you identify the places that you take recordings in. Initially, when I was recording, I was just excited about the sounds themselves and not considering where I'm recording them from. Later, I became conscious of the places that I go. And even if it's Nairobi or like a new place where I'm, I'm a new resident or I don't know people who live there, it made me become a bit intentional with my recording also making an effort to go to the place and just listen or get to know someone who lives there or before you record anything yeah i'd drive and stop and like landmark somewhere and record the place and then Mm. after a week later i'd like i'm gonna go and record again and then make this sort of continuous recording of the place where you'd become part of the place itself like you just feel comfortable and also see what changes or what's still the same and I appreciated this intention of like okay I'm gonna go back and even go back and play the sounds you recorded before (laughs) to the place yeah I think what strikes me is that this is this what you say, intentionality, but also a respect of, of the environment. Um, you mentioned that as a field recordist, you ask yourself, is the situation right to record or does the environment need to be recorded? Mm. Where is the balance? Uh, when is the space right to record? And when is it not necessarily right to record? Maybe it's the feeling of being an outsider in a space where you're trying to like appropriate the space that you're not invited. Maybe the space doesn't want to be recorded, like even a technical situation where everything just goes wrong and you maybe forgot your SD card. And you're like, <laughs> and it's happened to me um, sometime in new places, in new cities. I'm like, 
I forgot my SD card, so I'll just listen. I think this idea of asking permission, my friend, they call Amel Kangesa, and they work a lot with fish. And they did this project where they ask permission to record the fish. And they have a whole concept around recording fish. And this made so much sense to me, where you feel like you don't have the urge mm. to actually record a place because maybe the environments that you want to record don't really need to be recorded because we are constantly listening and recording as we listen. So on the flip side, when is it right to record? Or when do you feel that it's necessary to record? I think also with your motives of why you want to record, there's so much knowledge production from recording or like listening to a place that is important in some way to learn from for example, with archives, past recordings, we can use them as references to understand possible futures. This idea of archiving of sound and specifically in an African context leads me to your project, Temporary Stored. Do you mind telling us about what the project is and what started it? It began from a conversation that I had with a, a festival director who got me in touch with the Royal Museum of Belgium. They have recordings of Central Africa mainly, like Rwanda and Congo, but the larger continent. I reached out to them and they gave me access to the recordings to use was a very lengthy process because one couldn't hear what the recordings sounded like. It's very systemized information of like the pH or like the person who recorded and where it's from or what instruments are used in the recording. And I just selected a few and then after some months I got the recordings themselves. I was listening back to them and thinking, what would I do with these recordings or how would I work with them? It's only like the tangible objects that are being returned to their places, but this intangible or like the ephemera, how would one return it? It's a very sensitive project to just like go and engage with it. So it's an ongoing research for me about archives and what this idea of repatriating sounds means. Sounds are not tangible objects that are stored in museums and you can give them back to the people. I think this fluidness or like the multiplicity of ways you can transmit the sound felt important because it's accessible to people and there's so many mediums you can use to share the work. I don't know if this is something you would have the answer to, but why is it difficult for these archives to be accessed just by anyone that might be interested in having a listen? This was like the challenges I had, like me thinking about having access to this museum, working with these recordings and then sharing it out to the world. 
why is it not publicly and why is it so hard to get the recordings from them? There's so much process going on through filtering the recordings where you realize humans were like removed and the person who recorded is considered as the, the protagonist of like the recording and the person who we should know actually did this recording and also ties with this idea of my field recording practice where I go to a place where you like recording and you're the one who's like capturing this sound and this sound is is yours I don't think it's like my sound it's their sound and the people who live there know the sound more than yourself As an African, what was it like going through these recordings? Maybe the first time you received them, what was that like? Yeah, I remember being excited that I finally got the recordings. I don't know how many they were, like maybe 200 or Jeez. less. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but there were lots of recordings and some of them were so funny to hear because you understand the language and what's happening. And also at the same time, others were problematic because you could hear an introduction of a white man explaining the recordings and what the music is. And there's so much omission of like the musicians who were being recorded. And you can feel that in the recording, them being told to like play it again or something like this in the actual recording. And I approached the project like from a really broad sonic view where even the noises of the recordings were part of the sound. In your description of the project, you say that the recordings are reconfigured in an emancipatory sonic hearing of the archive, which I, I really felt. I was in Nairobi at the time when I listened to it, and I was on a run with my dad at 5 a.m. My dad loves to run. The sun hadn't risen, so it had only started rising, and the process of me listening to the work kind of partnered with this uh, visual evolution. And, and I think emancipatory is like a, a really good word to describe that experience. Mm. It was emancipating for you to work with these recordings and to release them in this reconfigured way. These nuances in these recordings that are still very valid now and I think it's important to like listen through the recordings and like find ways in which you can bring them into like a, a present. Because I think for archives and recordings, they were recording in the past, but still there's so much we in the present can learn from them now and even for the possible future and even using technology to like enhance them more. 
freeing how people listen. What do you think is special about sound when it comes to archiving? Sound, they have this sort of very close connection with memory. It's like the best way to remember because you, you'd hear and you don't have to see. You just like listen through archiving sounds. There's so much emotional memory that can be triggered of the past or even the future. It's important that sound also can be part of like the tangible archive. Yeah, just to provoke knowledge or information and memory. Sound does this very strongly. Yeah. I'm just thinking of the phrase you said, storage of the intangible, and I think that was so powerful. Um, thank you so much for speaking with me. I have a lot to think about after this conversation. That concludes the second and final part of a two-part episode where I, Nyokabi Karaoke, explore how Kenyan artists are using sound to share the truths of our past, our present, and our futures. In the first episode, I had asked, can sound tell us things about ourselves that other forms of archiving cannot? After talking to these musicians, it undoubtedly feels that the answer is yes. Through Jimmy Rugami's love for collecting vintage African vinyl records, we get to hear and experience the thoughts of the artists who influence cultural and political events, and we can ground ourselves in the foretellings of the future. Through DJ Raf's project, The Sound of Nairobi Archive, a hundred years from now, people will be able to listen to Nairobi, and from that, we'll know everything about our lives today, from what bird species were thriving to even the economic position of certain areas at the time. And through OneBeat alumna Kasiva Mutua, decades of tradition are kept alive, both in her own work and in the women that she mentors, giving many a way to connect with their heritage while pushing behind the misogynist exclusion that comes often with the tradition and the industry. But I think what Kamaru says sums it all up. With sound, we can store the ephemera, the transient, in a way that is living. The truth is, sound has always been a part of our history. We passed on stories and lullabies and wisdoms orally, for one. And today, our relationship with sound continues to take expanded forms and I'm more than hopeful for the impact that sound is having and will have on the way that we move forward as people from the African continent. Once again, my name is Nyokabe Karaoke, and I hope that you've enjoyed this journey through the sounds of Kenya's past, present, and future. If you liked the music that you heard in this episode, as well as the previous one, you can find them compiled in a playlist on Found Sound Nation's YouTube channel. Happy listening. Thank you for tuning in to the One Beat Podcast. This episode was produced and edited by Nyokabi Karaoke with help from Jeremy Thal, Kyla Rose Smith, and me, Ellen Moonpark. As Nyokabi mentions, you can find all of the music you heard in this episode and more on a playlist linked in the episode description and on our YouTube page. Please follow our work and the work of this incredible community of One Beat artists. Visit www.onebeat.org, that's the number one, B-E-A-T dot O-R-G, for more information. And if you're enjoying what you hear, please subscribe to this podcast, leave us comments, and share with your friends. One Beat is an initiative of the U.S. State Department's Bureau of Educational and Cultural Affairs, also known as the ECA, in collaboration with Bang on a Can's Found Sound Nation. 
The views and opinions expressed by our guests on this podcast are their own and not those of the ECA, Bang on a Can, Found Sound Nation, or any of its employees.